You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by Codify, a California benefit corporation. Visit Codify at www.codifi.com. Hey everybody, it's Chelsea from the Women in Archaeology Podcast. I am joined by Sarah Head, Emily Long, and Lindsay Doyle. All of us here at the Women in Archaeology podcast would like to wish all of you at home a happy holidays. It's been a great year getting this podcast uh, started, having all of you following along. We've loved all the feedback that we've gotten. Thank you so much for listening. We're really looking forward to all of the new topics that we're going to talk about in the new year and having this program develop. So from all of us here to all of you at home, we're wishing you and yours all the best in the new year. Happy holidays! Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, episode 15. Today the panel talks with Mandy Ranslow from the State Archaeologist's Office of Connecticut. They're discussing avocational archaeologists. They discuss ways that we can involve the public directly in our work as archaeologists and ways to make inroads with the non-professionally trained and what we can learn from those who may have more experience than us, even without a degree. Let's join the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast. Today, our topic is advocational archaeologists. What are they? How can we work with them? And how can we educate them? I am Deidre Black, and I am joined today by Chelsea Slotten, Emily Long, Kristen Bastis, and Mandy Ranslow. Let's start off with Mandy. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, why don't you start us off with a good definition of advocational archaeologist? So in my experience, an advocational archaeologist is somebody that doesn't have necessarily professional training or an educational background in archaeology, but it's somebody who's very interested in history and archaeology and is also willing to learn appropriate field methods, um, lab methods, anything else that might go along with it, and somebody who works alongside professionals on archaeological excavation. Excellent, excellent. And uh, how would you uh, differentiate avocational archaeologists from uh, what we may term uh, looters or pot hunters or other such things? Yeah, so an avocational archaeologist is somebody that will record and keep documentation of the excavations that they've done. Uh, somebody who's looting will just do unscientific digging, I guess, um, probably just looking for the shiniest and the prettiest of artifacts and not necessarily interested in uh, scientific research or the additional information they can find from a site. Great. So, uh, Mandy, can you give us a rough idea of, of how many avocational archaeologists you think there are out there, or what's what's the ratio? I guess is my question. Oh boy, I wouldn't even have, I wouldn't even have a guess. Um, I guess I can say from my perspective in Connecticut and the organization that I work with, uh, we have about 250 uh, members, many of whom would consider themselves advocational archaeologists. Uh, there's probably I would say twice, three times that more who probably aren't associated with our organization. But, you know, it's it's tough to say because people might self-identify in different ways than we would label them, if that makes sense. Uh, That's fantastic. Um, Since you are new to the Women in Archaeology podcast, we'd love to know more about uh, your work experience as well as what is this organization you're talking about and what your role is with them. Sure. So my day job is I'm an archaeologist for the Connecticut Department of Transportation. So I work in CRM, um, essentially an archaeocrat, and I push papers around my desk and other people get to do the fun stuff for me. Um, I've been there for about four years and my responsibilities at the Department of Transportation are 
reviewing projects and assessing whether they have an, a potential to impact archaeological or any kind of uh, historic site. Uh, in my free time, I'm president of the Friends of the Office of State Archaeology. It's a volunteer organization that assists the state archaeologist in pretty much whatever he needs. Um, our Office of State Archaeology is comprised of one person, the state archaeologist, who has many responsibilities as far as reviewing municipal projects, uh, salvage excavations, managing site files, doing any kind of lab work, and he has no staff. So we essentially serve as the staff. We also, um, through donations, are able to provide some financial assistance for the state archaeologist uh, where the state of Connecticut is in supporting him. So we do things like fund work-study students. Um, we have done things like uh, pay for radiocarbon dates. We pretty much try to do, we try to fill the gaps for the state archaeologist. That's great. And I mean, we all know that <laughs> there's never enough money to go around in archaeology, you know, so it's, it's nice to see that kind of cooperation and everything. So um, what kind of projects do you work on with the FOSA group? Um, it depends. A lot of times the um, excavations that we assist on are, are last minute. They might be what you would consider salvage archaeology. It, it's any kind of work that does not fall under either state or federal mandates for archaeology. So it could be something like a private development that's going up in a particularly sensitive area and state archaeologists have managed to cajole the developer to allow for a couple days of investigation. And so we would go out there and assist with something like, you know, test pits, what you would liken to a phase one in a CRM uh, project. We've also done, um, I guess what you would, you could call almost a data recovery at sites where somebody's dismantling a historic house to make room for some kind of new development. Uh, we also do uh, educational programming. The state archaeologist every summer does a number of uh, field schools for, you know, teachers or just adults who are interested. So our, our volunteers will go out and help with that. We also um, help out, you know, maybe some historical societies or cemetery groups or nonprofits who, you know, might be doing some work in their property but don't have the funds to hire a CRM company, nor are they obligated to. So we, we try to help out other nonprofits with the work they need done. That's great. Do you mind uh, walking us through a little bit about the process of getting uh, these avocational archaeologists either signed up to your organization or once they are part of your organization, if you get a phone call saying that somebody needs help with something uh, or an email, how do you go about contacting and organizing and figuring out who gets to who gets to go and all that kind of fun logistical stuff that we all love so much sure uh oftentimes it's it's an email my email is on the front page of our website so i'll often get contacted by somebody uh because i have a full-time job i'm not really at liberty to go out and help with uh excavations during the week myself so i forward those along to the state archaeologist because um we want to make sure that, you know, despite the fact that we're encouraging and using a lot of volunteer labor, any excavation that gets done, we want to make sure it has some kind of professional oversight and that the state archaeologist has the ability not only to take on the field work, but to take on all the subsequent responsibilities like lab work and analysis and report writing. So I'll be honest, sometimes, you know, we, we can take the job and sometimes we can't take the job. It really just depends on time and, uh, and the, the freedom of the, the state archaeologist to take on something at the time. Uh, once the state archaeologist agrees to do the excavation, uh, we send the information to our volunteer coordinator, who then emails the information and puts out a call for volunteers. So when somebody signs up as a, a FOSA member, they can check off a number of things that they're interested in doing, and one of those is field work. So they get put on an email list, and we probably have about 100 to 150 people on that email list. And uh, so the call goes out. We generally uh, can take, you know, as many people who are willing, to, uh, because most of our digs are during the week. I'd say we only have maybe a dozen to 15 people available on any given day. So it's not too many people that can get out to a dig. Um, 
there's really no formal process other than just paying your dues and signing up to be a FOSA member that allows you uh, to come out and participate in those excavations. Uh, what we do is it, we don't discriminate on most digs if you, depending on your your skill set, your ability, and your background, uh, we do a lot of training right out there in the field. People are trained either by the state archaeologist himself, but more often by experienced FOSA members. And we have some FOSA members who have been doing field work for um, probably longer than I've been alive. So we have we have people with a real great depth of experience that can help out our newer members. What kind of range of people are you getting? Is it mostly retirees um, so that they can actually come out during the week? Or are you seeing kind of a full range of ages and so forth? Uh, for our broader membership, it, it's a huge range. We have everything from, you know, high school students all the way up to, you know, people who have been retired for a couple decades. A lot of times during the week, the people that are able to do the field work are the retirees. But, you know, our retirees can range from really young, you know, 50-somethings all the way up to 80-somethings. So even within our retirees, we have a, a pretty broad range. Um, there are... are there's a handful of professional archaeologists uh, among our volunteers, but I'll be honest, a lot of the um, the people who come out to our field of work are retired engineers, uh, retired teachers, retired firemen. It's uh, it's really kind of a, a cool thing to have people with so many different backgrounds because they can bring some interesting perspectives, too, with them. That is really cool. Any idea on what got them into volunteering in the first place? You know, I think, and I'm sure every single one of you has had this happen, where you tell somebody, oh, I'm an archaeologist, and their immediate response is, oh my god, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I grew up, but I did da-da-da-da-da. So, I think our, our FOSA ranks are comprised of all of those people who always wanted to be an archaeologist, but decided to go out and do something a little bit more practical until they could retire and join us. I don't know what you're talking about. Archaeology is the most practical thing in the entire world. Financially sound and everything. <laughs> yeah. Way better than I guess the only care. thing is the rest of us are, we're all going to retire and become accountants, right? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> about that. I started responding to the, oh, I wanted to be an archaeologist. I was like, me too. It sounds like a really robust program. Um, it was, when I was at the University of Connecticut, I, uh, did a project with FOSA, and I also supervised some people who were working in the lab um, while I was there. Um, minimal supervision, just made sure they had um, what they needed and supplies and things like that. And then they they had been trained before I arrived, and so they were pretty self-sufficient. But um, it was a small group of people. I'm glad to see that it has expanded and grown, and now it's a really robust organization. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, it was, it was a really um, pretty strong organization, Kristen, when you were there, too. But I think, um, for better or for worse, the, the recession is what actually really helped us out, unfortunately, because a lot of people were either underemployed or not employed at all, and found, you know, a, an outlet to, you know, still do something with their time and, and came out to help us. And uh, so I think we, we kind of grew in that sense. And then just by offering consistent uh, fieldwork opportunities, that's what really helps people and gets them to come and join us. We're only one of two organizations in the state of Connecticut that is actively doing fieldwork. And in the summer, we're out every single week, so it's it's really built our ranks up because we can offer a lot to our volunteers. Mandy, I was wondering, so you were saying um, a lot of the volunteers have a wide range of experience, and you have some highly experienced field workers there, um, and I apologize if you already touched on this. Uh, is there, what, or what type of certification or teaching process is there to get everybody to the same level of understanding so you can kind of be like, yeah, volunteers, come on out, and they'll know for the most part what to do. Yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, we do not have a formal certification process, and I, I really don't think our, all of our members will ever be on the same level just because, you know, people come and go, and, oh, and people have been there longer than others. Uh, something that I have in the time that I've been president tried to implement 
And um, it's been met with some pretty good success, in, and I've done this with a lot of help. It's not just been me, is uh, we're trying to offer workshops. So not necessarily to, I don't want to say I'm professionalizing the group because we are still very much an avocational group, but we offer things to to kind of enhance what they're learning in the field in the lab, which is kind of ad hoc. So we'll have a workshop on artifact identification or just doing basic paperwork or background research. So those are usually like one or two hour workshops offered on a Saturday, um, which also allows more of our our volunteers to come. And uh, it just gives people a little bit of extra education. Those workshops are taught by professional archaeologists. So I've leaned on a lot of my friends who have very (laughs) kindly offered to come and then teach uh, the FOSA members uh, just a little bit of extra information. That's fantastic. And are you seeing that they're bringing it to the field or to the lab? Um, You know, I think it's still a little early to say. uh, (laughs) One of my my really ambitious endeavors is to, to see if I can get some of our volunteers, not just to do the field and the lab work, but some of them are actually genuinely interested in doing background information, background research, genealogy, even report writing. So there's been a couple who have expressed interest, and I've sent them reports. And, and you're like, yes, please. And I haven't seen anything yet, but, it, you know, it takes time, but at least the interest is there. And it takes some of the onus off the state archaeologists for doing everything, um, because at least if they can do some of the, you know, the heavy lifting at the beginning, you know, and, and maybe with some help and some you know, assistance from some professionals, I think, you know, there's a lot of potential there for getting our volunteers to go beyond just the field. Awesome. It sounds like you have such a great model that other states could base off of. I mean, I know there are other states that are getting different site steward programs going, but it sounds like yours is really just going strong. We're trying. (laughs) You mentioned a couple of times that you have people doing work both in the in the field and the lab. Do you see that there are more people interested in, in going into the field and kind of the of adventure of it or find more people interested in, in lab work? It's pretty evenly split. You know, I think it depends on the person. There's definitely some overlap. There's some people that do both field and lab work. Um, we probably have more people interested in field work, but the, the really nice thing about the lab and especially um, with some, some retired folks is, you know, they just, their knees just don't want to do field work these days. So doing lab work provides an opportunity for, you know, people who might not be able to be doing the outdoor work to, to still help and be involved and, and get the excitement of still seeing the artifacts. And, you know, there's just as many discoveries in the lab sometimes as there is in the field. So I think offering a variety of opportunities allows you to to accommodate a variety of volunteers. Yeah, that's a uh, really great point. And hopefully you get some of these uh, volunteers interested in doing the background research. You can get even more people interested, right? Exactly. You said you have some experience, so do you have similar experience from Texas? Um, why, yes, I do. <laughs> it, it may surprise some people, me being from Texas, or that Texas has a rather robust uh, program for avocational archaeologists. We have what's the, called the Texas Archaeological Society, mm-hmm. um, and it is for professionals and advocationals. Together, there's no requirements except you pay your dues, and uh, it's been going, I'd have to check the dates, but I think about a, almost 100 years at this point. It's been oh, going wow. for a very long time. Um, there are professors in it, there are CRM people in it, there's retirees, there's kids. Uh, they have a Native American archaeologist scholarship and stuff like that. And they do a few different things for education. They sponsor several workshops a year uh, taught by professionals and professors. Uh, stuff like pottery identification, lab methods, like cleaning artifacts, labeling them, stuff like that. Um, and they host one big excavation every year, usually someplace fun. And people will come out and they'll camp or they'll get a hotel room. And the volunteers have come the week before and set up the units, like done all the, the nitty gritty stuff. And, uh, you, we pair advocationals with professionals and they have a pretty, they have a pretty good methodology for doing it. And some of the people that go to those field schools end up going to college for archaeology and, uh, advocationals have assisted with the lab work afterwards with the paperwork, uh, even writing the reports. That's fun. Just like you're saying with your program. That- 
that's awesome. So is that, again, more older people? I mean, you mentioned that there were some individuals who ended up going to college for, for archaeology. Do you get you know, like high school students in the summer or... Well, they, they do make sure that the the big society excavation is always on the summer so that they can hit the summer break. Um, mm-hmm. if, when I've gone to meetings, yeah, it's usually about half retirees. But the other half is a mix of, you know, CRM professionals, uh, people who are still working but who are avocationals and uh, younger people, like even very small children that beg their parents to bring them to the archaeology meeting. That's awesome. Get them while they're young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the older people, honestly, were people that started when they weren't older people in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So, like, they've been just chugging along with the advocational group ever since then, and they are very proud of the quality of work they do, that, you know, it's on par with any professionals. I mean, that's, that's great, and that's a really good chunk of time. I know a lot of times organizations can have trouble holding on to, to volunteers for any length of time, so you've got people who've been doing it for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, must be doing something right. And then we also uh, what's, had, what's called the Stewards Program, uh, which is people who are all volunteers, and they're in each region. And there are a number that we can give to people that want to know about archaeology in that region or that want to report a site that they found. And they, re- they end up recording a lot of sites um, and have for quite, quite a lot of time. And all that they get is a website and a, a business card is all that they get from the state historic officer. They're out there doing it. And I think that's a great note to take a break on. Um, so that when we come back, we can talk more about other state programs like your program in Texas and other site steward programs. Let's take a quick break. I'm here with Michael Ashley from Codify.com, and we're going to talk about the new photo boards that they're developing and why we need them. Michael, what's important about a photo board and why does someone have to really think about what they use in the field or in the lab? You know, Chris, it's interesting when we look at field photos, the way we've been taking them hasn't changed much in the past hundred years. Some people may use the back of a clipboard or paper sheet to provide a clean background or go to the trouble of using those photo boards with all the letters, but we really need our photos to do a lot. We need a new kind of photo board that can help us achieve consistent color, provide scale, and help us measure things, especially if we're not collecting artifacts and we have just one chance to get it right. Developing a photo board that can do all these things, especially designed for digital photography, well, this is a challenge. It needs to be indestructible, weatherproof, fade-proof, lightweight, portable, and affordable. So what is Codify developing? And as it says on the website, what makes it magic? All right, in our lab and field testing, we started with a 10 by 12 inch board, big enough for most artifacts we encounter in the field, but not so big it would be a pain to carry. The board is magic because it has special markers on it that will produce a measurable model in 3D just from taking a few photos, and the object will be magically color balanced by using the board as a background. There's space on the bottom so we can superimpose a digital caption and company logo, plus a space for either physical barcodes or virtual ones to dramatically improve field and lab accessioning of artifacts and samples. So we've already received a lot of suggestions for other boards, so we're releasing a 4x6 inch pocket board in both Imperial and Metric. And we're psyched about our directional arrow, which has both metric and standard scales on it, and will white balance your photos. It's really cool. So when can people expect to get one of these photo boards, and where can they get them? All right, well, we're excited to say that we have a limited run in production right now, shipping just in time for holiday gifts. We want to get these in your hands and look forward to your feedback. Chris, what kind of deal can APN listeners get? All right, well, just head over to www.codify.com forward slash APN for a discount code that's valid only on that day and for other ongoing discount codes just for you. That's codifi.com forward slash APN. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Our topic again is advocational archaeologists. Uh, when we left off for the break, I was talking a little bit about our Texas programs, and I was going to finish up with that, and then we'll branch out from there. So uh, when we left off, I was talking about our stewards program, um, and those are some really amazing people. One of the stewards I had the great pleasure to meet uh, is an avocational archaeologist. He started with... Uh, the State Historic Commission, I think in the 70s, it might have been the 60s, and his name is Charlie, and he's an old Cajun guy, and he has a master's in chemical engineering. He used to do, he used to uh, study rice for DuPont, 
And in the region that he's in, I keep finding site forms with his name and they're, they're, they're filled out beautifully and wonderfully. He did a really good job. And he's still at it. He's in his 90s. He's still driving around in his old pickup truck, recording sites, teaching school kids and all that stuff. So those are the type of people we really love to have for advocationals. And that the advocational program in Texas, believe it or not, really started with the ladies auxiliary clubs in the early part of this century. The women that had a little extra time and a little extra cash decided they needed to preserve the history. And if you look elsewhere, you'll see that's where a lot of the other clubs started as well. And so now that I've talked all about Texas, uh, let's start talking <laughs> about other states. Um, I know for one, uh, when I worked in Mississippi, they had a really like concise program of working with advocationals and how to get people to start recording their collections, the ones that they have and stuff that they find. Um, especially in the area that I was in, every farmer and his brother has a dozen mounds on their property that they've plowed forever and everyone's living room is full of just museum quality pieces and they know that they're not going to stem the tide of collecting but what they're trying to do is educate people get people to record these things and you know sort of add them to the co the, the body of knowledge without scaring them off and not letting them see any of their cool stuff um, what are y'all's experience okay. i've had um some some interaction with individuals who kind of have those those artifacts you know, uh, you know all over their mantelpiece or in a box in the back of their closet or or what have you uh, and it's interesting there's um, a lot of concern from from those individuals or at least the ones that I've talked to that if they let somebody know they have this stuff it's going to be you know taken away or they're going to get in trouble or you know, something, something bad is, is going to happen. So they might pull it out and show it to their friend, but they're probably not going to pull it out and show it to the, you know, the state archaeologist who comes by. And I realize that the, the regulations on that vary from, from state to state and country to country, that there is or can be a little bit of, of distrust between the individuals who have those, those artifacts and, individuals who, um, you know, professional archaeologists. And I actually think that avocational archaeologists could be a, a great bridge there, you know, because they are part of the community and, and they can talk both from a position of power, but also, um, or a position of knowledge, but not as someone who has the ability to, to take your things away and, and say, oh no, like that's not actually the case or, you know, you're not going to get in trouble or whatever it is. That's a really good point. And um, during the break, Mandy um, brought up the fact that, yes, you can have these groups, but you also have to be very careful then how you train them. Because if you say, well, now you have the same training as certain archaeologists, well, these folks that used to collect things, maybe that means that they could, it, it's okay what they're doing then. And, um, Mandy, would you like to touch on that? Yeah, well, I think, I think you guys make some really good points. So I think there's a couple things. When you're trying to work with somebody who's a collector, uh, I think you need to maintain a certain level of respect. I think sometimes that the distrust and the suspicion could come from interactions with other professional archaeologists who could be really, you know, disdainful and judge, a little judgy about these collectors. Mm -hmm. And um, so you, you could see if, if they somebody's looking down on them, then they're not going to have a lot of respect for the professional. So I think respect is obviously the key there. Um, in a situation where somebody might be interested in learning uh, more professional archaeological methods and techniques, uh, like Emily said, you, ha you have to be careful with the message when you're teaching these programs. So I do half day, one day, workshops, you know, for people who are interested in archaeology, just to get a taste of it, see if it's something that they like doing. And in the past, I've seen other people give similar programs and, you know, they're trying to be nice and encourage people. And at the end of a, you know, a one day session, they, they say something very off the cuff to the effect of like, oh, you're an archaeologist now too. And, and we really don't want to necessarily tell people that. 
Um, we don't want them to think that after, you know, a day, a week, that they now know everything they need to know and can be considered, you know, trained professional archaeologists. So I think, I think we have to be careful with our messaging in that sense. Definitely. And I mean, going back to then, well, how, how do we train then with our, like Mandy was saying, with our programs, with one day programs and so forth? How, how is the best way to train avocational archaeologists? And I was kind of curious and I looked online which states actually have certification programs um, to become a, like, almost a licensed um, avocational archaeologist. And there aren't that many. It's um, Arizona, Arkansas, Colorado, Iowa, Maryland, New Hampshire, Oklahoma, and Virginia. And they have an interesting set of um, how you go about getting certified. There's an application um, for the Colorado program. Um, you become part of the Colorado Archaeological Society, CAS, and you're getting the, um, the PAAC, the Program for Avocational Archaeological Certification. Now, I'm not sure what um, other certification programs are like in these other states, but it's it sounds more intense than just being able to um, just say, now I'm an avocationalist. I think it's wonderful if you can go to one of these programs that Mandy's talking about, and then you know what you're doing. I My concern is just someone signing up and saying, okay, I'm an avocationalist now. <laughs> Where are the <laughs> artifacts? That's always my concern. Um, that, that, I think, has to do a lot with the message that gets sent during the training. Exactly. So, paper and then, documentation and... Um, you know, really using scientific methods and and uh, looking at sites as um, repositories of knowledge, not just a collection of artifacts. Uh, definitely. Well, one thing I've seen is a little step above a certification. For a little while, one of the universities in Louisiana had an associate's degree in archaeological fieldwork. It was a, a, hmm. a two-year uh, little certificate, and this is very similar to what you might get. Uh, there's some universities in South Africa that if you ever do work in South Africa, very frequently they'll work in conjunction with universities. And uh, there's an associate's program to be a field tech, and it's, you know, people are very proud of that. And so, you know, you, know you, you get the basics, but you're in and out in two years, a lot less money. That, mm-hmm. One of the things that the program here does is that they're, the people that are going to that field, that go to the yearly field schools for so long, once you've shown that you can do the paperwork and you know what you're doing when you're digging, you eventually get put into smaller and smaller groups and eventually you might end up leading and teaching others. So there's that sort of pride, I did such a good job, I'm allowed to teach others alongside the professionals. Mandy, have you seen that with some of your volunteers? Definitely. Um, we've had some volunteers, um, one in particular who is retired, um, who is able to come out to most of the excavations. He's actually our, our volunteer coordinator as well. Um, he probably started with BOSA, I don't know, five or six years ago, and he's pretty much the, the right man, hand, man of the state archaeologist now. And um, he's, he's great. He's really learned a lot. He's really interested. He's meticulous, detail-oriented. Um, he's uh, so, I mean, he can practically run an excavation himself. So, yeah, we definitely, um, there's definitely levels of, of expertise on our digs. That's wonderful. And I, I'm sure that's the hope for any site storage program, no matter um, how the training goes. You want to have people like that and people that keep coming back. Um, I remember doing for the Forest Service uh, just a one-day program for the um, Arizona site stewards on how to record a site. And I don't know about you guys, but like when I did so, when I first started in survey, I needed the repetition kind of like, okay, this is how you do this. This is then how you record, you know, a 10 room Pueblo. It's not going to just get it the first time. And I know for me, I, I wish I could give that program like every Saturday for a month or something for the site stewards program, as opposed to just a one quick, um, program. So. I kind of wonder, how can we do more, even though we don't necessarily have the time? (laughs) Uh, Well, I've actually been able to do some of this uh, with contract CRM companies, believe it or not. Um, I mean, very very often we're with a client that's like, 
you don't tell anyone what you're doing here. Let's sign all these things. You didn't see our pipeline. It's not a pipeline. You know, but every now and then we have one that either the level of the project or the client itself has wanted to do outreach. And while I'm good with outreach, I've, I've taught uh, the scout archaeology badge several times. And uh, some occurrences that come in mind, I worked on a, a enslaved person's quarters uh, on a plantation in Texas. And we had, uh, there's a local group of metal detectorists that pride themselves on quality of work, scientific work. and they were on vacationals, and these people have much nicer machinery than the CRM company could have ever <laughs> rented. And these guys can hear the tones of every type of metal, like, exquisitely. And we'll go over someone that somewhere, and they're like, oh, that's a fence, that's a structure, that's a coin, that's a bullet, that's a... It's like, wow. <laughs> and they saved us so much time, and we found stuff that we would have never found in, like, a shovel test sampling survey. Right. Uh, yeah. And and before that, we did one at a battlefield, uh, an 1836 battlefield in South Texas. And these people came out, and it was a million degrees. And I had two diggers and a detectorist and a paperwork person for each of my four archaeologists that were running the, the survey crews. And all they were were volunteers. And I had one woman who has a little bit, she had a little bit of mobility issues, but she loves paperwork. It has exquisite retired school teacher handwriting. Oh, that's the best kind of volunteer. <laughs> and she manned the paperwork table, and it was nice. beautiful. And she was a volunteer. Uh, and then one of the more, that was fun. And then another one was, I was at a, a National Historic Landmark that needed to be excavated, and the company was real interested, because it was an old company, was interested in their outreach. And we got the local... Uh, the local advocate, uh, advocational archaeology group and several Boy Scout troops and a Girl Scout and every news agency out there. And uh, the first week, it was just CRM people. You know, get in there, elbows and assholes, get it all set, figure out what's actually going on here so that when our volunteers came, we could, you know, it would look more cool. And it didn't really add too much to our work. And some of those, Scouts, holy cow. Like, they could dig. We had two of our advocationals, we ended up giving them their own unit together because they were really, their professional quality work. And one of the Boy Scouts, even though they only needed to come two days for their merit badge, several of them just loved it so much they begged to come back out. And on their own time, they came back out and kept digging so they could see what else was going to come up. That's so, amazing. That was fun. So there's and they got to see they got to see everything the paperwork the not finding anything <laughs> having to dig in a hard hat. I just wanted to mention before we go to break real quick um, that uh-huh. there's at Montpelier in um, these are Virginia they have a an integrated metal detector program there where they opt training to um, avocational metal detector detectorists um, that they've integrated into their research program. So they have designated areas where they want, where they grid off an area and the metal detectorists go out and survey the gridded area and then um, note their GPS, their hits and um, do some test little, you know, dig out the little piece of metal to see, you know, what it is, drop it back in the hole and then um, uh, later come back and do excavations um, in the areas where they have found concentrations of interesting material. And they recently discovered a tobacco barn that they didn't know they had um, on their property um, from nice. metal detector program. And um, they get volunteers from all over the country metal detector groups um, from all over come for the program and um, they've managed to integrate it into their uh, long-range research plan for the property. That's very excellent. And so with that, uh, we're going to take a little break.
8-Bit Test Pit is here to put Arceo Gaming on the map. Hosted by key players of the Arceo Gaming world, 8-Bit Test Pit sets to explain the weird and wonderful connections between the study of our past and the virtual world we like to explore. 8-Bit Test Pit breaks the field of Arceo Gaming down into three accessible formats. The main campaign is the monthly show featuring a panel discussion led by Andrew Reinhardt, Megan Dennis, and Tara Copplestone on a number of issues and topics, all of which revolve around the intersection of archaeology and gaming. Everything from coding practices to ethics in and about the game reality. Dug Up content is bite-sized 15-minute episodes released every six weeks, filled to the brim with information covering key terms and concepts in and about the field of archaeogaming. These will inform and educate in the time it takes to load your saved game. Archeo Deathmatch. Two Archeo Gamers enter, one Archeo Gamer leaves. When a field is new, disagreements are going to happen. Here in the virtual arena, two archaeologists debate a topic related to Archeo Gaming, hosted every five weeks, or as needed. Archeo Gaming covers not only the study of archaeology and video games, but also the study of games as material culture. Some of our hosts you already may know. Andrew Reinhardt, who was featured in the documentary Atari Game Over, Tara Copplestone, who studies how games are made through an archaeological lens, and Megan Dennis, a PhD candidate at the University of York who is studying ethics in video games. Plus, many more interested and insightful players in the Archeogaming world are ready to load. The show is hosted and produced by Sarah Head of Archaeofantasies fame and Tristan Boyle, content creator of the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. Our topic is advocational archaeology, and we're going to go to Mandy. Thanks. Uh, so, Deidre, some of the things you were talking about in the last segment um, made me kind of think about something that I struggle with, uh, both as a professional and as uh, a president of a volunteer group, and that's that, that use of volunteers and advocationals on a CRM project, so a project that is required based on, you know, federal or, or state law. And in my experience, um, there's been times where something is found on a, a federally funded project or a federally permitted project, and the first person that gets called out is the state archaeologist. And oftentimes he will take with him some volunteers to go investigate the situation. And this doesn't happen very often, but what I struggle with is, you know, having unpaid people working on a project that, as a professional, I see as needing uh, professional paid archaeologists working on it. So I'm just curious how how you kind of manage that use of volunteers on your CRM projects. Uh, sure. So the metal detectors that I worked with, these were all on state. Uh, historic sites that had extremely limited budgets and it was a matter of work needed to be done so that those sites can be uh, you know developed for interpretation but the budget had been extremely gutted for the various uh, historic sites and so it was that balance of getting the work done for the budget that was there, which is always going to be a problem. Obviously, you know, we should be able to pay people for doing professional work, but at least we got to do some outreach. So was this uh, uh, when we were involving these people? And then uh, when we had the scout groups, uh, part of that project uh, was budgeted for outreach. So we worked longer, the same amount of, uh, the professionals that were there ended up getting paid more because the project went longer to accommodate the volunteer labor. And so that was actually accounted for in the budget, like from the client. They wanted to do the outreach. They, they wanted to be, you know, a good community member, especially because they were an out-of-state company. And so, like, we could have just done X amount of work, but we were approved for more work because we were doing the outreach and making them look good. Um, that's certainly the way that I prefer to do it. It's like, we're going to get this much and get this much work done, but, you know, we can involve the community and and get more work done. You know, it's, it's always a tricky balance between, you know, professionals need to get paid and not being in your ivory tower. 
we uh, we know what you can do. So yeah, that's that's something that we always have to. Yeah, that, that it's a tightrope, and we always we always gotta we always gotta walk it because there's always unemployed archaeologists. Right, and I definitely would congratulate that company who did some outreach, but they didn't replace volunteers. Or, or they didn't um, use volunteers as a replacement for professional archaeologists. Right. I mean, I, I still had, Extra. you know, between 20 people on, on my crew, which is pretty nice for an excavation. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's also important that we not replace anyone, uh, not just because of the, you know, like ethical payment considerations, um, but also, I mean, like this site has, this country has so many archaeological sites in it. You know, we need, all the help we can get in recognizing them and uh, reporting them and reducing the the number of people capable and interested in in doing that is to no one's benefit. And that's why I mean I think it's wonderful to have programs with site stewards with volunteers where they can fill in where it's desperately needed. I know when I was working for the Forest Service, I mean between for archaeologists and you have you know only a couple million acres to worry about <laughs> it's wonderful <laughs> to have site stewards that are trained you can trust them and they'll go out and monitor and check on sites or after a fire you can um there's there's just too much to check on and you can have people go and see if the site is still there after a wildfire um but i think it's yeah incredibly important to stick to say that they are not replacing professional archaeologists however they are incredibly an incredibly important resource within archaeology and your the site steward program is that different than the paraprofessional program that the forest service has or do you know um i think they are technically two different programs but you can get paraprofessional training as a site steward <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so I, I, the, the reason I ask is the paraprofessionals are actually paid staff, even if they're temporary, they're paid staff of the Forest Service, whereas the um, site stewards are volunteers? Yes, the site stewards is a volunteer program. Oh, one question on, on that program. I, I've had the opportunity when I've done contract work for the Forest Service uh, to meet some people that had been... Uh, trained as a paraprofessional. They do all kinds of stuff. They cut down trees or whatever, but they had received a lot of training to work, uh, to do, uh, paraprofessional archaeology work with the Forest Service, uh, arch- department archaeologists. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last several times that I've worked with the Forest Service, I was told that that certification program was being phased out because they couldn't afford it. They couldn't afford to have that person on full time anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard anything about that? No, I mean, when I working for the Forest Service, thank goodness, that was five years ago now, um, six years ago. But they were even phasing the program out then, and I think that was more of a concern that again replacing professional archaeologists with paraprofessionals because you could pay them less um, and uh, have the have kind of a. Um, Two for one, where you have somebody who is um, a trail management, but also a paraprofessional archaeologist, then you don't need to have the archaeologist type of thing. So I know at one point the program, in some areas, I cannot say this is a blanket statement by any stretch, but in um, in uh, one of the areas I was working, this being phased out because there were concerns over the, the training, um, some of the quality, and then just uh, a need for professionals. Um, and I think the site stewards were then gaining more ground and being, it was more turning more towards the site stewards program instead of paraprofessionals. As far as I know, I can't That's say that for all the four service. The only reason that I know about it is because I have a copy of the CDs with the paraprofessional training program from the Forest Service on them. And I was looking at them for um, possible training materials to use. And, um, you know, nobody wants to reinvent the wheel. So, uh, you know, if I saw anything there there that I thought would be particularly useful in the training I have to do for the NRCS or um, state parks, 
um, you know, I was going to, of course, attribute it, but use it. Um, and that's the extent of my knowledge is that just that it, it, it did exist at one point because they have these training PowerPoints. I do think one thing, and I know we've mentioned it, but just to make very clear, um, when we're talking about site stewards, paraprofessionals, all of these wonderful volunteer programs, there is a major difference between those volunteers and those you may see on TV, um, like the, the diggers program and people doing metal detecting and, and at battlefield sites and taking the artifacts, not helping, you know, uh, an interp site or um, trying to enrich our knowledge of the history or archaeology, prehistory, history, et cetera, of the site. Um, they're doing it for their own gain. And so I just, I always want to say like there is a huge difference between the two and we value and love the volunteers. And we got to be very careful that folks are not thinking of the metal detectorists um, that, or the folks just randomly collecting things out on a, you know, BLM area. Um, They're not, that's my soapbox. I'll jump off of it now. <laughs> there, you know, there are the, oh, sometimes people will ask, like, why do archaeologists not like people who are collectors? And my major reason is because the collectors take the diagnostic artifacts off the site. And then later on, if there is a project that comes through there, the diagnostics are gone, and then you're left with a bunch of flakes that could have come from any time period, and you have no way to date the site. Um, you know, carbon dating costs money. There's not always carbon at every site. A lot of sites are dated by the projectile points that are found on them, and if you take them away, there goes your dating um, ability. And that's one of my major pet peeves is that they are, you know, they're, and they put them in a box and they take them out and they don't know which field it came from or which site it came from, which property it came from. And then all that information is lost. And that's a really and good point too. And to take it a step further, that can even have repercussions for eligibility or not of a site and whether that site gets protected. So if all the diagnostics are gone, and you can't actually make a case for, you know, eligibility under criteria D, you might have to write off that site, whereas if somebody hadn't taken all the diagnostics, you might actually find that eligible. Right. That's true. I hadn't even thought about that part, but yeah, you're right. Well, I have an amusing story, so we don't have to end quite so bummer, <laughs> involving collectors and, and site eligibility. So there's a lot of big ranches in West Texas. One of my uh, associates was doing a survey out there, and they kept finding all this planeware. And they're like, "What is going on here? Every site we find, there's you know, there's no painted, you know, there's no redware, there's no multicolor like polychrome. Like, what's going on?" And so they start thinking, "Oh, you know, maybe we have an expression, you know, of." You know, planeware, da da da. Just trying to come up with all these big theories about why. Why are we only finding planeware out here? Huge sites, lots of them, acres and acres and acres, miles and miles and miles. What's going on? Well, after they had finished the survey and they started writing the report, they finally got to meet with the woman that was a landowner. She's like, "Oh, I love archaeologists. You know, I used to host Girl Scout camps on my land. You know, in the '40s, the '50s, the '60s, the '70s." And then they went into her living room, and there were mosaics everywhere, (laughs) where the campers had picked up all the polychrome shirts, everything with the planeware, and, you know, had sorted it by color and created these huge mosaics (laughs) out of the polychrome. So they had worked on this huge theory about why this one area had just plain wear, and they walk in and they go, oh, it was because someone made mosaics. <laughs> That's fantastic. And <laughs> in, in, in Ohio, I saw a couple of living rooms with where they, they had taken the projectile points that they had collected and made pictures out of them. Like there was a, a Native American 
um, rep- a representation of a Native American in a war bonnet made out of projectile points. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> it was huge. It covered, it was like fireplace and it was this huge, beautiful, amazing work of art. And it, it was astonishing in, on multiple levels for me. Some art, but it all represented so much loss of information. I think that's the key one there. It's like, we may be laughing, but a little part of us just died inside. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hoping any of our listeners that um, are not archaeologists, but interested in archaeology, become a steward, you know, volunteer. Um, See what you can do to help protect your local history and prehistory. Never can have too many volunteers, and you can never have too many people care about the past. Um, so being involved is the best advice I can give is for non-archaeologists do something to help protect the past and for archaeologists see what you can do to help educate the public and make them want to be involved make them want to care Emily I think sometimes it's hard for non-archaeologists who are interested in archaeology to find ways to get involved so I just want to put a shameless plug in for The Society of American Archaeology actually has a network of state coordinators, and those people are listed online, and I think I muscled Emily into being the one for Colorado, too. And what you can do if you're interested in getting involved is contact the person in your state, and they can put you in touch with volunteer groups or archaeologists and and find ways for you to get involved. My name on the list right now. I think it might be. Excellent! (laughs) The other thing that's great is the SAA has recently put out a notice to professional archaeologists that kind of admonishes us to work with our avocational archaeologists locally and and be a warm reception for them um, so that a more cooperative uh, relationship can develop over time. And maybe the antagonism between the two groups can kind of slowly fade away and we can come together and do uh, great work. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's important to work with avocational archaeologists. And I mean, we just have so many sites in this this country and there's no way to find, record, uh, keep keep track of, take care of all of them. And I think that, you know, it's a really great point that we need to work, work well together and we do need the, the public to be involved. I mean, unfortunately, I'm a bioarchaeologist and there's not a whole lot of avocational archaeology going on in bioarchaeology, at least not that I've heard of, which is not surprising because, uh, human remains and, you know, specific training, uh, that goes, um, that would be an awkward volunteer. <laughs> beyond yeah um so I, I feel like i don't have as much to add to this particular episode i, I think allocational archaeology is is important and there's no reason why you can't be the volunteer coordinator for your state yeah because i need to add that to my phd <laughs> and my job and my other job <laughs> you're not busy enough no no not at all i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> and i guess i'd like to say through the advocationals there's more of them than there are of us and if you're not a professional and you're interested in archaeology, take pride in, in the history and the data of the area around you. It's not just something pretty. There's this, all this information that can be attached to it. And if you're an awesome steward of history, you can make sure that that data, which is much greater than the object in itself, is preserved. Be awesome. Okay, I would like to thank uh, Mandy Ranslow, our guest tonight, for coming on the podcast and sharing her experiences with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of the Women in Archaeology podcast. We've been talking about educational archaeologists, and uh, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. 
or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomtep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and edited by Chris Sims. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.